Good evening, you're all listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Today, I'm joined by Inverse.com's Rowan Kaiser. Hello. We also welcome back our friend, Fraser, 7 out of 10 Brown. (laughs) (laughs) Finally, we welcome back our friend, freelance writer, TJ Hafer. Hey. So, today we're going to be talking about Homeworld Deserts of Karak, the new real-time strategy game from Blackbird Interactive uh, that is a prequel of sorts to the original Homeworld games from Relic. Uh, but before we dive into uh, Deserts of Karak, we should talk a little bit about the original games. Because, you know, speaking personally, when I heard about this game... I was a little hopeful, but mostly really skeptical. And when Fraser brought it up, actually, as a game that was one of his most anticipated uh, for for this new year, I was even more skeptical because I just kind of felt like taking Homeworld out of space and putting it on a desert planet and then making it about tanks and, and the like just seemed... Uh, almost sacrilegious, like a travesty, like you're making a mockery of what, of what Homeworld is. And so I, was, I, I think I was sort of predisposed to uh, disapprove of this, of this project a little bit, disapprove of, of not of this game necessarily, but of it being a Homeworld game. Uh, but at the same time, it's interesting because my memories of Homeworld are of this amazing, awe-inspiring, uh, magisterial sci-fi masterpiece of an RTS. Then we finally got the Homeworld Remastered games uh, last year. I went back and started playing uh, this game that I'd been sort of pining for 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 years and years and years. And uh, it was, in many ways, just as I remembered it, uh, it was also pretty annoying to play in a lot of ways. Like, it was was a remarkable game. I really enjoyed it. It also sort of annoyed the hell out of me uh, way more than than I remember the game being uh, back in, like, 2000 when I was playing the original games. Uh, And and I'm curious, like, you know, when, when you approach this, you know, what... What memories did you have of Homeworld? Like, what did Homeworld mean to you? And then what, uh, you know, how did you interpret uh, Deserts of Karak's new setting uh, in light of those memories? See, for me, it was always this kind of beautiful, elegant game. Um, when you watched the, the ship shooting through space, it was like watching these little, these little machines just dancing and synchronizing. It, it was absolutely beautiful. And I think it was the the tone, the story, the music, all of those kind of aesthetic things uh, very much that, that kind of I remembered the most and loved the most rather than the raw strategy. Um, so when I uh, picked up the remastered collection, um, all of that was, well, it was even better looking. It was even more beautiful. than I, in, in a way, I suppose it was as beautiful as I remember because my memories had tricked me. Um, but I still found I actually found that I really enjoyed it as an, as an RTS. It was a little bit slow at times. There were there were kind of downtimes where I was a little bit bored, and maybe the vastness of space was too vast, and I, I missed. I kind of felt there wasn't enough interesting things happening all the time. There was a lot. Of, it was very relaxing at times, but then there was these massive spikes in difficulty that kind of caught me unawares. Um, but I, I was very much kind of what I wanted from uh, from Deserts of Crack was something that had a little bit more obstacles in it and some geography. That's what I was excited about. As, as much as I agree with you that Homeworld for me was always about the setting of space, I was really excited about 
a lot of the kind of elements being transposed to a planetary setting where you have to worry about geography and it's not just about flying in straight straight lines you have to worry about mountains and sand dunes and visibility becomes even more important so i was actually excited about what could be brought to the table by the new setting i think the thing about the original homeworld is that it's the it's a sort of game that it couldn't be done until it was actually done so like we have this real-time strategy genre through the 90s that's you know it's largely two-dimensional it's on these flat maps that maybe have introduced some slight elevation things um you have graphical processing that like struggles when it gets you know too many too many spaceships on the screen like the last wing commander game was shocking because it suddenly could have like 16 ships for the good guys yep. and you know hundreds for the bad guys and uh when the first several wing commander games had like giant battles of 10 ships tops so you have like this technological achievement of it actually having these massive space battles in a reasonably good three-dimensional space interface and then you add on all the style and uh aesthetics that fraser was talking about uh, and it's a game that like it felt like it shouldn't have existed and yet it did um and that that will paper over a lot of flaws because it did have a lot of flaws like it was it had a campaign where you like you built your you built your ships and you kept them from mission to mission as opposed to every other real-time strategy game where you start anew every time and like that was really easy to mess up and really easy to exploit there was almost no like good middle ground to actually play homeworld so you have this situation where the game shouldn't exist and it kind of actually doesn't really exist without this sort of like meta knowledge of how everything works but uh, conceptually there's there are very good reasons that it should have you know remained in the discourse as as it did as a special kind of real-time strategy game but it was not like perfection incarnate it was an ambitious mess is maybe too strong of a word but it was ambitious <laughs> with some very messy components do you think that it maybe got a sort of almost mythical status because after homeworld uh the, the series there wasn't anything really like that again i mean the, but maybe the closest thing would be maybe sins of a solar empire yeah. a little bit because it's in space but it, it's it's nothing like homeworld it went in a completely different direction and is more uh, a kind of it's part of a 4x game really um so it, by having it kind of it stood out so much more because nobody really tried to do anything like that again. And nothing like that had existed before. So it just could have existed in this like vacuum almost. The vacuum of space. Yeah. Well and I, I might <laughs> I don't know if I'm the only one here who didn't actually play the remastered. So like going into Deserts of Karak, I'm thinking back like over ten years to like the last time I played Homeworld Two. And it did have that kind of mythical uh, place in my consciousness as like one of those games that, you know, came out of nowhere and nobody's done anything like it, it since then. Um, I don't I, like to the point that I didn't even really remember the flaws that much because it, it wasn't really fresh in my mind. I just remember awesome looking space battles and 
not having to pay bills. Um, so that was <laughs> <laughs> that was kind of my memory of it. So uh, I think it's also good to place it in the context of its particular genre because the real time strategy genre has been far too static in my opinion um especially since roughly the late 90s when everything thing turned into red alert or starcraft or total annihilation <laughs> this very particular sort of basecraft idea mm, um yeah I, I feel like you're a little off on the timing though because like the late 90s like that sort of that era kind of ends with like the release of a game like Homeworld and the arrival of Relic in real-time strategy games making like more tactical wargaming wargaming uh RTSs and then around the same time you've got Warcraft 3 which which kind of um you know it has it has a huge influence on on the real-time strategy genre and really actually kind of burns the Red Alert Command and Conquer uh book so I mean I I, 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 I don't feel... think so. I love Warcraft 3 but it is a straight up basecraft in game. Like well, it we were... has some RPG stuff attached to it, but it is exactly the sort of game that, like, I think that the genre was moving directly towards. I... Rowan, Rowan and I had this almost exact same discussion a few days ago, because my argument that is, is that Warcraft 3 on a competitive level is basically an RPG with minion swarms, so I would have to disagree with you on that. Yeah, I I don't really care about Warcraft 3 on the competitive level. Like, I'm not, I'm not yeah. a huge multiplayer player. I was like... I like to play the campaigns, maybe dabble in multiplayer a bit, but you get, like, in the mid-90s, you had a bunch of different people trying a bunch of different styles of RTS games, like um, Seven Empires or Seven Nations. God, I can't even remember now. But that was, like, Civilization combined with an RTS, and it was an RTS in interface and not, like, an RTS in, like, full-on basecraft mode. Um and then you eventually got to a game like Homeworld, which feels to me like sort of one of the la last gasps of the idea of we're going to do something that's not just putting building, slapping buildings on a map, gathering as many resources as fast as you possibly can, and then economically overwhelming your opponent and occasionally using tactics. Like, but as Rob pointed is... out, Relic then went and did, you've got Company of Heroes. And mm -hmm. the, I don't feel like you can say that that wasn't doing anything different because that was massively different from anything else. I played a bit of that and just bounced right off of it. I don't, it's, the setting may have been part of that, but it felt very similar to all the others to me. Like, Did maybe... you play Dawn of War 2? Because that was very, very different. I haven't played Dawn of War 2, and that one sounds like it's very different we, in an we, interesting way. We are way, now going but... to list RTSs and be like, <laughs> is this a knife? Um, Specifically Relic RTSs. Yeah. It seems. <laughs> yeah. So, These are all spoons, people. Yeah. Now, turning to uh, Deserts of, of, of Karak, uh, or Karak, uh, I, I haven't paid close enough attention to the cutscenes to figure out how they pronounce their made-up word. Uh, all Can I know is, in any sci-fi game, whenever I see... A lot of apostrophes showing up in the middle of words and names. I'm like, oh, pfft, don't care. <laughs> uh, but so with with, with deserts of uh, of Karak, um, uh, TJ, you gave this game a, a very positive review. Uh, what uh, what what's uh, set it up for us a little bit? What is what is deserts of, of Karak in terms of uh, setting, and then kind of what you're what you're getting up to uh, as in in your role as commander. Yeah, so it's it's a prequel to the to the uh the older space-based homeworld games. You have a land-based aircraft carrier instead of a mothership. It produces all of your units. 
Um, it's actually a very powerful unit, so possibly too powerful, uh, kind of in and of itself. Um, and you're trying to race across the desert and fight off some crazy religious fanatics with hover tanks to discover a secret thing in the desert that I also have forgotten the name of because it has a bunch of apostrophes and stuff in it. Um, the the thing I, I really liked the most about it and that contributed heavily to my score is it's... I, I pick up so many new RTSs where it's just kind of a pain to play. It's cumbersome to, like, figure out what I'm doing and get my units to do what I want them to do. And the heart of Deserts of Karak, specifically, I'm not entirely sure how much of this is carried over from the older homeworlds, but definitely true in Deserts of Karak is it just feels so effortless. Like, just to get a grasp on the battle and on what's going on and how to send which units where and get them to do what I want them to do. And I feel like my strategy always plays out the way I envisioned it playing out, whereas in a lot of other RTSs, that's not the case. And I just found it very refreshing. Yeah, like I reviewed the latest StarCraft II a couple months ago, and like, you know, that's it's an economic game where you're trying to build up your units as quickly as you can, and the tactics mm -hmm. are, they're there, but they're not like, it's not like what the game is for in the way that Homeworld very clearly announces that it is, because those formations are just really, really attractive. Like, it puts your units in the right places, then you can, like, fiddle with them, and when the battle starts, they all seem to go to the right places. It's, it's partially AI, but it's partially just the way that they sort of naturally path the units, which I guess is sort of a, a part of AI, but it's, it doesn't feel like they're doing this because they're trying to be intelligent. It feels like they're doing this because they've been programmed to do things that look intelligent, which I guess, again, is AI. But uh, Well, it's the, the interface plays a big role, too, because yeah. I have terrible minimap awareness. Like in StarCraft, if I hear, like, you know, our, our workers are under attack, I'm scrolling around going, like, shit, where are my workers under attack? But then the the combination of the the more specific audio cues and the like overarching strategic view in Deserts of Karak, it's like the minute my sub commander dude tells me there's something going wrong, I can figure it out within about two that, seconds where it is and what I need to do to stop it's, it. It's a visual too, because there's a red spot on the screen that points you in the direction yes. where what yeah, they're talking yeah. about is so there's the, the interface is gorgeous and like the strategic overview when i was doing the tutorial i was thinking okay whatever who even needs this and then i find myself using it constantly because it's really really effective it's really fast and um the way that it helps you with elevation and mm -hmm. stuff like that is um like it, it it makes it makes it feel like the two-dimensionality of the map is not the uh not the hindrance that i expected after hearing about oh homeworld has gone to homeworld has gone on to land instead of in space which takes away the thing that made it so special but it's not it's it's how it uses that space and it does that really well i just want to call out i don't think i've seen another rts import something like uh sort of the the, the little red highlighting uh, for where you're under attack, because uh, that's basically imported from shooters, right? Where like you're mm -hmm. taking fire from a direction, mm -hmm. and usually there's a little visual cue to indicate where the threat is. Um, 
in a lot of shooters, I find that actually intensely distracting because usually the effect is almost overdone. Um, and then, of course, there's the side effect of, of jam cam, uh, which is, you know, when you're in a shooter, you suddenly smear blood all over your screen uh, <laughs> just to signal that you're taking damage. But I don't think I've seen another RTS uh, do something like this. And it's a really simple tweak. But I actually found it enormously helpful to have this really subtle uh, but noticeable like red border appear on the screen to be like, uh, yeah, there's combat happening. Just like, look, just scroll to the upper left, buddy. Just just that way. Look, look, uh, th- which was really cool. Like, again, it is a it is a neat touch and it's a thoughtful touch that I think uh, speaks to a lot of the things uh, that, that set uh, Deserts of Karak apart. Right. That sort of attention to detail. And there are little things that you can do as well, like, for instance, you were mentioning the, the kind of strategic map, for the, which is like, I think, the sensor mode or whatever they call it, where you can see things like elevation and kind of the, the big picture. But if you want to see the topography of the map, you don't even have to go all the way to that new mode. There's a hotkey that would just then show you the elevation while you're just looking at the, the normal terrain. Um, so you don't even have to switch to the new mode to see it. it. Like information is always just at your fingertips, if if not actually just being flung at you. Um, so you always really feel like you're in control. You know exactly what you need. Um, there are just so many different ways that it, it explains what's happening in the in the battle, and it makes me feel a lot smarter than I am. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There, there's so much in 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 other RTSs. I get this like fog that descends over me. When I'm being attacked in six different places and I just know I need to do something to, you know, save, <laughs> save my army. And I never felt that way in, in Deserts of Karak. I think there's like the interface deserves like huge amounts of credits. Like when you just see enemies coming over a hill and they have little plus marks next to them showing that they're more powerful right now because they're firing down at you. And, um, you know, you can see all this elevation stuff and it, it, helps give the helps give the game a sense of actual space um and it also looks really cool and makes you feel good when you figure it out and like start putting your artillery on the crests of hills to just nuke any enemies that show up and it's 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 got all these little touches that um really you know feel like the original homeworld kind of did in my memory of this is a game that tries to marry its aesthetic and its functionality um i think it this game also has they're not as bad but it has some uh similarly difficult or not necessarily difficult similarly uh similar issues with the overarching story and progression of how it goes, but in terms of like feeling it moment to moment, it's better than any RTS that I think that I've ever played. What's crazy is the amount of, of RTSs that you'll play that when you're zoomed out, you just have no idea what units you're looking at. Um, you're, you're too far away for you to see any of the details, and for some reason they aren't given distinct icons. Um, and yet Homeworld does have that, so when you're you're looking at the, the, the big picture, you know exactly where your little scavengers are and where your railgun tanks are, uh, and you can just group things really easily. So you always can see the, you know, all of your units, you know exactly what they are. There's no problems. Um, and I think I was playing um, Ashes of the Singularity, which to be fair, to be fair is not remotely finished yet, and hopefully that will come into play. Um but I just didn't have a clue what I was looking at half the time. 
Uh, it's also that Homeworld has like the right amount of units. Like they're like yeah. eight or ten or whatever. It's enough to have a good variety, enough to create a sort of strategic vision for how it wants to go. But it's not so many that it's like, what is the difference between this piece of artillery and this other piece of artillery? Um, and like, again, StarCraft Two, like added like two units to every faction with each incarnation and already felt like it had more units than the original starcraft and it's like why do i have so many different variations on the same thing where homeworld has these are very specific things these are their roles and it's enough but it's not too many and you can do things like have clearly distinct icons on their sensor mode that make it possible to understand the game and then you've got the upgrade system, which adds a little bit of diversity without just throwing loads of different units at you. If you want to have a slightly different kind of railgun tank, well, then you can just, you know, upgrade it. Yeah, I feel like it doesn't lose anything strategically either, because the StarCraft II at this point is like they're trying to give you, you know, 20 different choices of like a pre-made frozen dinner. And then Homeworld, <laughs> it, it gives you the ingredients to create a lot of different armies, but they're they're basic ingredients, but you can do a lot with them if you think differently about the terrain and about how they're they're going to work together. There's just as many, you know, strategic possibilities, I felt like. I like that analogy a lot. Uh, and I, I, maybe this is a good trend, the trend toward simplifying your unit rosters a little bit, because uh, TJ, you and I were talking on Twitter not long ago about uh, the Age of Charlemagne uh, expansion for yeah. uh, Attila. And we were both kind of pleased that uh, it was, you know, at least the units were clear cut. Their purpose was was fairly clear cut. I missed a little bit of, of their variety, but on the other hand, I didn't have entire like categories of unit that I just ignored in Age of Charlemagne. Yeah. And I feel like a similar thing is happening here where each unit does have that that clear role. They have clear relationships to uh, the other units they'll, they'll encounter on the battlefield. Uh, but you're also not choosing between like you're not choosing between like rock and slightly bigger rock. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like Rome too had like thirteen different medium infantry units for just the Roman faction. And it's like okay, that's cool because these all existed historically. But which one of them am I actually going to use in in this battle? That's what I want to know. So I definitely like I like the fact that giving you fewer tools and making them kind of more archetypical and um, simpler in their function creates a more it creates a more interesting strategic battle space to me, frankly, because it's you have to figure out how to work with what you have and not rely on some like gimmicky unit that, you know, has like stealth and, you know, a laser scythe and can disable enemy mechanical units for 13 seconds every, you know, five seconds or whatever it is. Yeah, there's not a ton of like for lack of a better word, let's call them spells to worry about. Like units, using units frequently have a special ability that that they can deploy. Uh, and the one I use probably more than any other is uh, the smoke cloud ability. Yeah. Uh, from the from the assault tanks, just because in this game, cutting line of sight is hugely important. It's why another call out to a great interface. Um, 
when your units are moving across the landscape, if their attack moved toward a direction, uh, there's little lines drawn toward their objective uh, showing their line of sight and where it's broken. Uh, so you always have a sense for, for how units are interacting with the terrain and uh, what is obstructing it or where they'll have a clear lane of fire, uh, which is, again, just a cool touch. Uh, but, yeah, that, that this, is, this is very much a game where uh, it, it feels very wargame like in, in some ways with with its focus on um you know the 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 player you know if you see it you can kill it it, it does feel like carrier warfare in that regard right mm-hmm. like it may be the desert but in some ways the dynamics are a little bit more like you know the the rules of naval warfare where the first the first thing is to see the enemy before they see you uh because that first that first strike ability is is hugely important and that's kind of the dynamic that governs this game to an extent i mean i think i think it's clearly intended to sort of be the the desert is an ocean of sand that happens to have some elevation points on it um that's and I think that's it's a really cool thing, and I think it it doesn't just integrate war game ideas, but it also integrates things like Total War and other real time strategy games. And it seems to be picking from basically any sort of tactical um, or operational game that has all these different things, and it's taking the best parts of that and seeing what works for them. And it's it feels really intelligently designed in that respect in a way that. I haven't played a real-time strategy game for for years, like. And it also adds adds new things, or not new things, but it improves on things or, or draws things from 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 the original homeworld, like the just how the the units are constantly in motion. They're always yeah. dancing around and circling their their prey. They're like animals. Um, these aren't like really boring battle lines where you'll just get this line or blob of units that would just stand there and stupidly, pig-headedly fire. Um, and, and it's not like just a scrum, like a real-time strategy game where they all charge in and hopefully your guys are, you have more of them. Yeah, they, they seem to kind of, they react depending on the makeup of the of the squad i mean it's it's just like how you're talking earlier about how formations work how they create their own formations intelligently you don't have to assign formations because depending on what units you've got they know how they should form up and i think the the moment where i said okay this is this is a homeworld thing is like the moment in the very first tutorial when it gives you the light attack vehicles which is a long way of saying these are deserts of Karak's fighters like this is if you remember if the main thing you remember from homeworld is like watching your fighters buzz around in the heat of a huge space battle as they're trying to knock out an enemy carrier or whatever then it gives that to you instantly with the light attack vehicles buzzing around on a two-dimensional plane but they have that same sort of dancing in motion idea and as soon as i saw that i was like okay these guys these guys are definitely trying to nail that sort of feeling even though the the plane is flatter yeah it's great to see the lavs just swarm an enemy and just it's like death by a thousand cuts um it's it's i mean because that's one of the things that it really does take from hold is just how beautiful the fights look as well um it does look more organic more like they are as i said before like animals rather than machines well and it creates a it creates an interesting depth to a lot of encounters too because you can send 
you know, the LAVs basically through the front line uh, with their boost ability to kind of start hammering on the back, you know, the artillery and stuff on the enemy side. So you kind of have fighting going on throughout this whole axis instead of just like one blob lines up to fight another blob. And you know immediately, like right from the, the even before the, the first mission, right from the tutorial, you know that if you're dealing with something slow like a, a, a railgun tank, then you just send your LAVs after it because it takes so long to fire, it doesn't really know what to do with them. And before it can get more than a couple of shots off, it's, it's just been blown up by like five or six or ten of these tiny little gnats. But it's rare, both in the single-player campaign and in multiplayer, I think, to encounter those neat, clean matchups. And so it does turn into more of a, um, you know, this is this is kind of where I think the micro comes in, right? Is that the game doesn't want to make it difficult for you to control your armies. So, like, by and large, if you attack, move an army somewhere, uh, it'll take a sensible formation and it will it will perform decently uh, without you having to worry too much about it, which is great. But you also run into a similarly composed enemy army at some point, uh, you know, probably with, you know, some some heavy tanks up front and, uh, you know, railgun tanks, which are kind of your snipers, uh, a little toward the rear, and support vehicles and artillery. And these are all things you need to worry about. And if those two armies run into each other, they will just kind of slam into each other and sort of grind each other down. And it's hard to find those those crisp, clean, like, counter matchups. Uh, that's why you need to, I think, make these kind of command groups, really, yep. isn't it? Because that's that's how you win, especially in in, in you know multiplayer and skirmishes. Um, that's how you win those battles is by you've got all your LAVs together. You set you see where the railguns are. You send them there. It's you know where you need to actually put them, but you don't really know what's going to happen until you see the makeup of the enemy force, yeah. and it's always going to be like combined arms. Yeah, you can't you like you can't keep the LAVs like in the auto formation with the with the main army because yeah. they will just die on the front line and not get anything done. They need to be, you know, hot And they need to be up close as well. Yeah. I mean if they're just if they're you can't use an LAV to like defend something very well. No. Your your enemy should not even see the LAVs until it's already too late for them to do anything about them. Yeah. yeah just far boost and they're there immediately. Um but the other thing I, I enjoyed there in, in terms of these in terms of these matchups is um I feel like with StarCraft in particular, but but I think in a lot of RTSs, there is kind of a tendency to um to have those those really to have those sort of hard counter relationships, right? Where if like if you bring Marines into a StarCraft battle with Zerg and the Zerg has Banelings with speed upgrades, those Marines are in deep trouble and they will be wiped out within seconds unless you're like, you know, a pro level master who can split each individual Marine and uh, save them from disaster. But in a lot of in a lot of you know a lot of games following the StarCraft template. There is kind of this if you have if you get the wrong matchup, uh, you are punished for it immediately. Like that you you are hard countered fast and your unit is not only ineffective, but it's killed almost instantaneously. Uh you have very little time to to sort of correct your mistake or make an adjustment. Uh in Deserts of Croc, I kind of felt like those relationships were those relationships were still intact. Uh, if you were if you had the wrong matchup happening, so for instance, if you had like assault tanks uh, going up against railgun tanks, um, 
like the 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 assault tanks would would get hammered uh before they before they closed and they wouldn't do enough damage uh to really outdo the railgun tanks but it would still take a few minutes for that entire relationship to play out right like the, your your tanks would be at a disadvantage but they wouldn't be instantly dead so you had time to decide what you wanted to do with this battle that had started under disadvantageous circumstances uh which i which i found really nice and also it puts the focus more on the stuff i care about which is the battle right i i want a big pitched battle a running battle with lots of room to maneuver and send in reinforcements and execute flanks i don't want Almost this deterministic, like, well, if your composition hits their composition, and here's what your compositions are, here's who, you know, here are the results. Uh, that's not what this game does, and I, and I really appreciated the the fact that, uh, you know, it managed to have those interesting relationships between units, but they weren't so clear cut or punishing uh, that you didn't have time to recover from a mistake or adapt to uh, a suboptimal fight. And if you yeah. did get into that situation and you didn't have reinforcements, and I think it's, it's worth noting that it, it's not that common that you're going to find yourself with just assault tanks and nothing else, um, at least certainly not after the, the early game. Um, but if, if you did and you don't have reinforcements nearby, there are still options. There are still, like, you can use your uh, smoke bombs to, you know, fuck up line of sight and then flee, or if you've maybe got some air support, you can just bring them in and just with some bombers or something like that. There's, there are usually things that you can do, even if you don't have forces very close by. I mean, I think the game is the game is slower, and this is this is huge. It's not as slow as the original Homeworld was, but it's at a level where the strategy aspect of the real-time strategy actually feels like the most important thing, as opposed to the getting all your timing and all your clicks and all your all your uh, build cues and all that lined up it, it feels like okay i am making decisions that will impact these things just because you know it's three quarters of the speed of a of a starcraft or whatever and that's that's what i want out of a real-time strategy game that's it i feel like it feels so much larger scale because of that i mean especially in multiplayer like a 1v1 you're not really dealing with more units than you would in StarCraft, but the battle feels bigger, partly because of the strategic view, but also partly because, you know, you you your whole force across the map can potentially contribute to a given engagement. Whereas like in StarCraft, if I have, you know, Broodlords at my opponent's third and then he attacks my base, there's no way they're gonna actually get there in time to contribute to that battle. But Homeworld or Deserts of Karak allows, you know, pinning down those sorts of maneuvers and trying to kind of get around a flank in in a more strategic way than you would in, in like more skirmish style RTS game. And it just made everything feel like a larger, more unified battle instead of a lot of little skirmishes going on over resources across the map. And yet it's not so slow that it lacks tension. Um, no. And you can still get these surprise victories and just you can still in certain in certain situations just lose a hell of a lot of units very rapidly if you've made a major mistake. So there's still that uh, that intensity that you would get in a in a much quicker RTS, but it's also more thoughtful. Yeah, I think that it's also 
the sort of conception of the game with the carriers with the sort of naval idea gives it again a sense of space that feels real or comprehensible like in a conventional spacecraft style real-time strategy game like is is the battle that i'm doing taking place across the something the size of a country is it inside a city like it doesn't feel like it has a sense of scale outside of the game itself whereas in this game it you sort of get a sense of this is like this makes a strategic real world kind of sense to it real world's maybe not the quite what right word but no, but um, I, I know what you mean, though, because there's moments where, like, a good example of this is the interaction between uh, ground and air, uh, where if you have a force that went across the map and started doing some harassment at a resource location, uh, and they get in over their heads, and it's a sizable force, and, you know, you're not sure, like, are you going to try to get them out? Can you rescue them? Whatever. Um and your carrier's across the map and your main army's across the map, nothing's going to get there in time to salvage the situation, except maybe air power, right? And then you have this extra complication of, well, okay, well, your fast-moving fighter bombers will be there in seconds, right? Which kind of makes sense, right? You're you're calling in the fast movers, the quick-response aircraft. Uh, But to get, like, the heavier, like, bombers and gunships over there is going to take a while longer, right? So, like, it, it does always feel like when you have, you know, when distance comes into it, the distance feels like a significant obstacle. Like the delays, it, it feels like these the all all the units in this game do operate on a consistent scale, right? It's not like an RTS game where the jets are bizarrely like slow, right? Like they're just sort of crawling <laughs> over the over the over the ground, uh, not that much faster than a tank here. You do you you do get that sense of okay there's 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 tanks there's 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 jet fighters there's there's uh sort of helicopter type units uh and it all feels kind of convincing uh you know in, in the way they all have this relationship to distance and terrain um I also want to say here that distance the the distance on the map uh the 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 space on the map also ties in really well to the the few but significant differences uh, there are between the Coalition Army and the uh, Galcian uh, armies in multiplayer. Uh, because, you know, at first glance, I kind of felt like maybe these, these, these two factions were a little undercooked, um, that they, they seemed a little too... They seemed to mirror each other a little too closely. Um, but you know they they have a they have a f- their their differences are few, uh, but they're incredibly meaningful, and I think that's that's no that's no more so uh, important. Uh, that's never more important than when it comes to the different ways they actually uh, produce units and uh, yeah. how that affects their relationship to to the map. Yeah, it's it's like they're they're tactically almost mirroring each other, but strategically it's actually quite different because the. The Galcian can build a cruiser that can produce smaller units anywhere on the map, but then they also have the disadvantage that their their uh, support cruiser can't harvest resources without an upgrade. So Coalition kind of has an advantage to like spread out and get more resource locations quicker early in the battle, but then Galcian can you know park a a production cruiser behind you and build a whole bunch of tanks and LAVs 
and throw them in from the back when you're engaged with what you think is their whole army. So it's but another to balance that of... out, the carrier, the Gaussian carrier, is it starts off quite weak, surprisingly so. And it, in fact, it, I think in the our multiplayer matches, Rob, we both were a bit stumped by the the Gaussian carrier. Um, to the point where I ended up chatting with um, with Rory McGuire, the uh, the lead game designer, um, about how to actually use it properly, um, which shows that there is a bit of depth to it when I have to actually ask a dev, how do I play this game? <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, well, and also it, it does... The, the carrier is an interesting thing here too, both its role in the game and the difference between the faction's carriers. Uh, because... Unlike in Homeworld, uh, the original Homeworld, where the mothership was kind of this cool, impressive, like, base that couldn't really do much of anything. Like, it was this giant bag of hit points uh, with, I think, just light weapons to sort of deter harassment. But it was it was, it was, was mostly just the sturdy uh, thing that wasn't supposed to get taken down. Um, here, the carrier's... You know, if you lose the carrier, the game is over. So they're this incredibly valuable, precious resource uh, that has to be protected. But the carrier is also a, a super unit. I would say more so for the coalition. If the coalition can yeah. can get their co their their carrier with their main force and sort of you know battering bat, uh, battering ram their way uh, into the enemy's face, that that carrier is kind of a um you know it's a Death Star on wheels. As yeah. you find out in the only multiplayer match against you that I've won, Rob. <laughs> yeah, uh, that was that was that was pretty frustrating to me uh, that I hadn't I did not scout carefully enough, and I was very I was very taken aback when uh, that giant coalition carrier and a bunch of cruisers came rolling up. Uh, just right into the middle of the battlefield. Yeah. Just over June. Hello. But yeah, so they're, they're, they're these incredibly like devastating weapons platforms. Uh, but, you know, the analogy I made to them uh, when we were playing Fraser is they're very much the queen in chess. You know, like yeah. you, you bring it out and you are establishing like tremendous power. You are you are making yeah. a power move. But by God, if that thing gets into trouble, you have just destroyed yourself. So you have to really judicious. But when really I tried that judicious. same tactic in, an, in a different match against you where I, I didn't realize where your carrier was and i ended up having to travel a lot further that whole time being peppered by your forces well, and losing all of mine so it was literally just my carrier versus your entire army yeah that um, was uh that was that was fun <laughs> i liked that one that was you, you well, the main issue actually is you didn't realize where my main army was yeah, uh, it was much further south than I thought it was. Right, and so you were making a power move by bringing your carrier out, and you were like, "I'm just gonna, I'm gonna establish uh, dominance on this side of the map." It's and like you sort of peeing on this, this huge army kind of corner. Yeah, and the first thing you encounter is just this like basically fortified line of railgun like tanks and three cruisers or something. Yeah, and so they just like peeled your army off like instantly. Uh, but I was still terrifying because your carrier still destroyed that army. Like I. Just destroyed yeah. yours your army was gone even without support your carrier was like just hammering those units that were around it uh, well, i think i got it, your carrier down to half health before you finally took me out oh, i mean at that point there was no way i could have won but by god i was going to make you work for it no it was it, it was terrifying it, it, it was like 
you know, you're you're just frantically trying to to put this like crazed bowl down, uh, as it was, <laughs> it was as it was trying to gore you, uh, and everyone's just sort of trying to trying to trying to get it, bring it down with these uh, little pinpricks. Because uh, I still felt like there was a lot for me to do, even when I just had my carrier, because you can tweak the the, the power systems on your carrier yes. to to give you greater range, more damage, more defense, repair, oh, yeah. all of this stuff. So I mean, that was one of the problems you had dealing with my my coalition carrier was that I was regenerating. Um, so it was really difficult until I got to your carrier, and then you could just kind of converge your forces around me and just whittle me down. Um, well probably the probably the most intense match i played of multiplayer was a 2v2 and we were doing the artifact mode so you can win by destroying the enemy character carriers or getting artifacts to these drop-off locations it's a really good mode i love it yeah they 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 had parked a carrier on our drop-off location so we couldn't get any more artifacts (laughs) which is fairly common in the meta right now that's that's pretty common but um so it was it was a situation where they they would have only needed to pick up like one artifact to tie us and i don't know what happens if the timer runs out on a tie so i basically i put my, all my my carrier power into weapons and charged their lines. I lost my carrier, but I actually did enough damage to them that they weren't able to destroy our other character carrier or pick up another artifact. Um, <laughs> which is another reason I like that your queen analogy, Rob. Is it's like, yeah, I, I I sacrificed a queen, but it actually paid off for us. You can have situations like that in two v two and three v three. See, Rob trolled me quite a lot by just parking his bloody carrier right on the drop-off point and so every you know after i'd maybe dropped off two artifacts rolling with a third oh okay it's like his army is just sitting there <laughs> so after that uh, i think we we went into another map um where it was quite easy for me to just park my carrier on my own drop-off points when Rob yeah. rolls up suddenly he's like hello i've got mine here too um so there are ways to counter it um, but God, it can be devastating if the enemy gets their carrier there first, because there's really not much you can you can do other than just bombarding it constantly until it becomes too risky to stay. Right. But those, yeah, but those locations are also very they're very far from the resourcing locations, yeah. right? So and you're actually your drop off point as well. Yeah. So it's it, it, there, there's there's actually a lot to that multiplayer mode. It's really simple, and I've heard the 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 multiplayer options be described as, as bare bones, which which they kind of are. But I mean, it's a really good mode, though. Is the thing right? It like, really is. I mean, I guess the 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 one thing I wished is I wish there were more maps. But I guess oh, yeah. to an extent, like a lot of they are coming. I believe. I'm pretty sure I saw a tweet about it that there was going to be some some map DLC free. I think on the way. Okay, that's that's great. Um, even even some of the single player maps, I wish they would open up for multiplayer like the one with the big ridge in the middle yeah and the oh, yes. where there's the could crash you imagine landing? even yeah. that i think it was like might have been like the third map where it's just that um that valley during the sandstorm um oh, where it's yeah. that journey could you imagine that both both teams going an opposite journey and just having to cross each other there that would be or interesting to, or maybe if it was more like goal oriented where like one the coalition team has to make their way across the map while the um the Galsian one has to stop them from getting to their destination that sort of thing 
because those mission objectives were actually, I, I think that the single player campaign is fantastic. Um, there is a great variety in, in the missions. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I felt like it was, it did a very good job of not just having you whittle away at objectives. There would actually be twists that would hit you in the mission that would kind of change the whole pace and initiative of it, which is something that I enjoyed quite a bit. Yeah, there's the the sandstorm because the, the the going through the the valley with the sandstorm is quite cool because the previous mission it's it's a race to yeah. to complete your objectives before the sandstorm actually hits and then you oh, go God, into so it. good it's and you've got no visibility and so just enemies are just coming out of nowhere and you don't have a very big force at this point so it's terrifying so every unit really does count that's this game does a really good job of having a lot of flavor to its setting and its its missions like you know it's it's funny because you know i looked at it in the early gameplay videos and such and another thing that made me skeptical is just it seemed it seemed so spartan right it was you know the 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 art style was was fairly um you know the units were fairly simple nothing at all like company of heroes you know if if that's your reference point or or nothing like starcraft where the, the units are hyper detailed there are little um, cool touches though the way they shake and bounce yes. around in the dunes it's it's subtle and nuanced stuff that really got me well and very consistent actually with with homeworld uh and yeah. the way it's it's like ship silhouettes uh same here the, like the vehicle silhouettes are all are, are all very distinctive um, and instead of those engine trails, you've got the plumes of sand and dust getting kicked up by their tires and things like that. Well, and then like, yeah, and then the missions, like when the sandstorm comes in at night and you've got the the mothership in that sort of desert dry dock, as it were. Oh, yeah. Uh, underneath all the arc lights and your units are out there fighting in the increasing like murk of night and this sandstorm from hell. And it's kind of gorgeous and terrifying all at once and that i think is something i didn't think this game would would have uh with its new setting like the original homeworld games in part because from the very start you're you're dealing with sort of a battlestar galactica level apocalypse right like your your civilization is wiped out uh in the first minutes of that game uh but also because the game is 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 has that sort of clean icy look um you know homeworld was was a game of like stark and sort of frigid beauty and i was like okay that's not going to how do you how do you recapture that well it turns out that you know blackbird have sort of found these these stark and you know kind of terrifying beauty of the desert as well uh in this game and it turns out to be a pretty great backdrop for for another homeworld game. I mean, other than maybe the sea, you can't really get much closer to that sort of loneliness of space. Other than like the the desert, really, it just it feels exactly that it had the same emotions that you feel like so vulnerable, and there's this kind of the elements are all against you. Um, I was um I was actually thinking it'd be cool to see like a a Antarctic type expansion for this game. Where you actually have to worry about like your units freezing up and stuff, and it would have sort of the same, a lot of the same traits and aesthetics, but just colder. The company it's, of it's heroes desolation, too. Desolation, isn't it? Of that's that's across. homeworld. Yeah, isn't exactly. It? Yeah. yeah, yeah. No desolation. I, I, that, that's a good point, Fraser. Is uh, that is kind of the 
the aesthetic, the 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 overall aesthetic, I think, of the Homeworld series is that feeling of being a very small speck in a very large and indifferent universe, and that it just you know that's kind of what it's trying to evoke in in each different game. And the story, and I, I'm not going to spoil it um, because it's actually, I think, as strategy games go, it's a pretty damn good story. Um, but the, the setup is that uh, Krak is actually going through this kind of environmental disaster, so to speak, in that the world is being consumed by this desert. So you're trying to find a way to to get off the world or save it. So it is this desperate journey across this planet that doesn't really want you in it, very much yeah. in the same way that ho- the original Homeworlds was this desperate journey across space, and exactly. people didn't want you in space either. Um, <laughs> exactly. The themes are exactly the same, but it doesn't feel like just copy and paste it. Um, yeah. it it's just, it, it kind of touches the same, sorry, it's just as emotionally resonant. Yeah, um, just like being being cut off from everything, there's you know nowhere to retreat back to, help is not coming, you are it, and you have to get across this terrible expanse to to complete your objective or everyone is it? screwed. Yeah. I I mean the the one thing I, I, I will say is I found the campaign maybe a little too easy. Uh and I, and I think part of that is okay, so bring the StarCraft example in again. Uh I think StarCraft does a very good job of having missions that are structured to uh, sort of keep you on your toes that uh, a lot of starcraft missions both force you to defend one thing while simultaneously uh rush around the map and put out fires elsewhere uh that's a that's a pretty standard starcraft mission template and they use it to really good effect um starcraft has its bad missions too right the whole like take your army through this maze and you know okay those missions kind of suck but starcraft has a lot of those missions where you can't just sit back and uh, focus on one objective and sort of be undisturbed while you do that. In Deserts of Karak, I did kind of feel like the campaign was not <laughs> was not harassing me enough. Uh, that there were they there send were... tiny amounts of troops at you, kind of in small groups. Often, it feels yeah. like it almost feels like it's like the scouting party before the big one, but then it does. There's no big army that comes after that, or at least not all the time. There's just like 50 of those that you have to beat slowly. (laughs) (laughs) And like, do you want to sit back and just mine the entire map? Go ahead. You can do that. We won't. We're in no rush here. This is. And that kind of bugged me, right? Is like the Gaussian are out there and they're angry that you're trying to tear apart these ships and get these artifacts. And my God, they're these terrifying like desert uh, you know, fanatics that just won't just won't let you be. Um, And then in the mission, they're like, I guess we'll send some guys in in hover jeeps over and see what you're up to. And uh, are you done yet? Okay, just no, you know, have your your miners just let them finish. Uh, we'll we'll see you at the end of the mission. Uh, no rush. And so by the like by midway through the campaign, in my bank I had like thirteen thousand or more uh, construction <laughs> units and like three thousand like um. Uh, what the hell does RU stand for? Is it like research units or resource? I think blue. Res- <laughs> three thousand blue units. Yeah, three. Yeah, three thousand of the expensive, uh, rare, ga- rare resource. Yeah. But the point is, so midway through the campaign, I basically had enough in my bank to lose and rebuild my army like two times over. Yeah. Um, especially because 
I, because the AI didn't really get in your face that much, I was usually able to uh, engage on my terms and keep casualties pretty low because I was able to sort of fight these set-piece battles. Uh, whereas, you know, the old Homeworld games, almost to a fault, we kind of try to blow your plan apart and force you to adapt, which, yeah, created situations where you were basically economically destroyed for the rest of the campaign because you had too good a battle uh, three missions back. Uh, but at least created that sort of tension of if you lose these units, they're, they're, they're gone forever. Um, and I took that to heart in Deserts of Karak, but it made me both conservative and then, you know, midway through the game, suddenly money really is no, no object. Yeah. See, the well, thing that's... is, that when I was playing the remastered collection, um, I got pissed off a lot. And I mean, that's maybe it's a good thing. It's uh, a, an emotional reaction. But it, it, sometimes it was just like, I just kind of threw myself away from the desk. And I was just like, I've had enough for now. I'm angry with the game. It has upset me and betrayed me. And while... I definitely agree that Deserts of Crack goes way too easy for you and that Galcians never feel like this genuine, legitimate threat. Um, I never just kind of had to walk away. I think overall I maybe enjoyed the experience a little bit more, um, but I could have definitely done with a bit more challenge. The issue is that it's overscripted. And mm. I mean this both in like the literal way and in the programming way. Like... What annoyed me about the campaign is that it never shuts up and it never shuts up in a way that like doesn't add personality to characters like there's one named character in your army and then there's a bunch of other people but they're always like intel officer or ship captain yep. and these people do have names that you see later but it's like are these people who's i should care about or whatever but instead the conversations are always like i'm doing this thing in my military thing good job military speak blah blah, yeah, blah. i yeah. loved that though i loved when you just be you just be you know getting some resources and then you would hear someone from the carrier call up someone in a scavenger and ask if they're like you know tire alignment was out or something like that or if there's some sort of heat regulation problem and it's just gibberish but it 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 felt like it gave it a sense of place the background stuff like that i liked but mm. like when you had these constant cutscenes. oh right yeah okay um, yeah the cutscenes and, and weren't and the only thing that they're saying is, I'm going to the place. Go to the place. Here are your new orders. All right, I'm at the place. I'm doing your orders. It felt kind of like one of the older Metal Gear games where like, you just get people come on the radio, explain what you're doing, and then they call in another person to explain what you're doing in a different way. Um, and I mean, it was definitely not Metal Gear levels of bad, but it was... it it. It never felt like it was really adding too much, um, and if you ever had to redo a mission, like you could only skip like the really big cutscenes. You couldn't skip each part. But this also led to each of these cutscenes also indicates like a new phase of what you're trying to do. Um, so in the first phase of a mission, you are you know you go to collect an artifact, you fight off a couple Gaussian skirmishers, and 
that's it and then you get the cutscene where they explain okay we have to go somewhere else and do this and now the galcians are scripted to do something else their armies are scripted to be maybe a little bigger maybe they have more artillery but everything feels like it's like cut off into these little itty bitty slices and it never feels like all right i'm going to be getting in like a knockdown drag them out fight that lasts for 20 minutes with the best that the ai can throw at me versus the best that i have it's always these little win here then go here then win here win, then go here and it's like explaining this to me painstakingly and i suppose that's uh, like a negative side effect of them trying to create the sense that you're on a journey uh because it, it's as rts games go it's one of the ones of the most obvious you know narrative um right. it is less kind of sandboxy you just do what you want fight how you want there is there's it's not like it's telling you you have to you know have these specific units or things like that but you usually know where the big battle is going to be and where the big enemy ship's going to be and things like that yeah and it also feels pretty exploitable especially on normal i mean i i haven't quite finished the campaign yet so maybe it gets better at like countering air units but usually i have just found that i can tell my fighters to go destroy things oh yeah that stops yeah the moment like basically the moment they they finally give the ai missile batteries uh the whole thing that you do in the early missions which is just spam airstrikes um that comes to a pretty sharp and sudden end um, when you they, get they into told the me there were Galician territory it, it starts to get a little bit trickier they told me that they were giving missile batteries but i haven't seen that yet but i hope i'm, I'm glad to hear that but like it, it feels like uh, the original homeworld felt this way is that like in the very first mission you have this situation where the enemy is constantly coming at you with like i think destroyer class ships and you have these ships that can take over other ships so if you just sit there and wait for like 10 15 minutes doing nothing but taking over enemy ships you suddenly have a destroyer army that can like survive pretty much anything through the first two thirds of the original homeworld so like there are all these like exploitable things with their kind of consistent armies across the narrative and this is this is better at that but it like like rob said like you if you're playing smart enough it gets to the point where it kind of doesn't matter and yeah. uh well and there's I've, there's unit there's unit veterancy too which really changed you, yes. the way that i played because by by the end of the game i figured out okay so to to like get the optimal amount out of the resources i'm spending on these units I'm just going to build all battle cruisers and put a line of repair tanks behind them and then have artillery behind that. And these mega huge units will just to keep accruing veterancy and I yeah. can just creep across the map with them. I never lost any units and I had the same thing happen that happened to Rob. I ended up with a surplus of money and nothing to spend it on by the end. Yeah, the campaign definitely uh, teaches you uh, a different way of playing uh, because I actually barely use the LAVs in the campaign because they just weren't that cost efficient like they died too much uh whereas even if i got a bad matchup with a bunch of heavier tanks like the uh assault uh vehicles and uh yeah the battle cruisers uh, are a good example if i simply had enough repair units backing them and enough high damage units uh providing most of the punch uh i could just sort of brute force my way through a lot of these battles uh because my units simply wouldn't die and eventually the other guys would uh now that doesn't work in in multiplayer because 
control of the map and being able to respond to things in these really disparate locations is hugely important. And suddenly that whole like, you know, one big army strategy kind of just leads you leads to you getting picked apart uh, or, or, or put on the sidelines while someone wins an artifact victory. But I did love uh, what veterancy added uh, in the, in this game really gave you this feeling of this isn't like veterancy itself is a resource in this game, right? Yeah. That, you know what, if you, if, if a, if a group of units win a few battles and manage to go up a few ticks in the, in the veterancy, uh, they get pretty massive bonuses. Uh, they become much more effective versions of themselves. And to lose that, it is one thing to replace the unit, but replacing the experience that went with the unit is much, much harder. And uh, I think that was a, another really great touch here. I agree. I had three uh, rail guns that I kept from like the second or third mission all the way through the game. And they were like the three amigos. Like you put them on the <laughs> hill and they would melt whatever was at the bottom of that hill. And uh, one of them ended up dying in like the second to last mission. And I was like, no. no. Yeah. So... I was pretty furious when uh, one of my stolen honor guard cruisers uh, in the campaign, you can, you can hijack enemy units and bring them over to your side. And I had one that had survived several missions was just a, was just like massive. The thing was just a beast uh, thanks to all its veterancy. And uh, you know, at some point I didn't pay close enough attention to what it was getting up to. And it decided to go mano a mano with a carrier and uh like i you know i'm I'm dealing with all this other stuff and i look up and this thing is just like slugging it out with this with (laughs) with this carrier like point blank range and i'm like why why do you do this like why like why does that happen uh yeah that hurt am i right in remembering as well that um when you use uh the ability to capture other units you can you can ignore uh the uh, the unit limit as well, can't you? Yeah, I think that's a way to float supply. Yeah, yeah, it, you you can, but it's not like the original game where you could like have all these different units doing it. It's this one special unit. It's, yeah, it's, it's the Rachel time, it's the Jet or whatever her name is, isn't it? Yeah, the, the one named character. Um, the <laughs> the and she has a really long cooldown on it as well. So it's, yeah, it's it's a neat little thing that gives you a little boost, but it's not the game breaking thing that it was. In She's the like the heroic world. unit of the game, really. Yeah, yeah. It can shift the balance of a few missions though, because you can use it to get carriers a long time before you can build carriers, mm-hmm. which really kind of turns the next couple of missions where you're not really supposed to have carriers into kind of a steamroll. Also, you can be just like, oh hey, I have a hover tank. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I mean, the thing that I sort of th- started thinking about toward the end of of my time writing the review, I started flashing back to our conversation about um, active aggression, uh, Fraser, mm. where uh, oh you had God. a lot of objections to that game. <laughs> I got that, really angry about it. Yeah, and I think at one point I basically like uh, I, I I think I, I pointed out that you're basically like complaining about a whole bunch of things that define rts right you yeah, like, i don't want to be i, totally I don't want to be faffing about with this with this <laughs> harvesting i don't want to be <laughs> doing any faffing with all this construction i just want to build armies uh which one you know at, at once like struck me as a, a little bit unfair toward the game but also at the same time i think maybe more honest uh because 
I think there's a lot of things in, in RTS games that are really, really frustrating for the majority of players. And, I, and coming to Homeworld after playing a lot of StarCraft earlier this year, I was like the freaking king of Homeworld. Because, like, there's nowhere <laughs> near as much to do, right? I was just able to sort of focus on making decisions rather than, like, trying You're to... You're quite good at it, Rob. <laughs> uh, but But you know what I mean? It's like... Starcraft yeah. is there's there's all these things you have to be thinking about and paying attention to and checking in on uh all the time. And here was a game that was like, eh, don't don't bother too much with, with most of that. Just you know, just watch your army, you know, micro those units around, uh and, and and focus on that. And it was it was kind of an easy RTS in some ways, come approaching it after after StarCraft. Uh and I suspect like someone who's like a, a a real purist uh, for that type of RTS might not like Homeworld uh, at all. Might find it like too too stripped down. But for me, it was like this is just a game that is comfortable to play. Like I don't feel like it is not stressful. Uh, it's just it's just enjoyable, and it's letting me. I don't feel like it's trying to keep me from making good decisions. I feel like it's trying to let me think about what I want to do. Uh, and what happens after that is is really more dependent on on the decisions I made rather than the speed with which I executed them. I feel like it, it's it's come at the perfect time for me because I think if if you recall when we were doing the 2015 wrap up, um, and you asked me you know if I was maybe just like almost like done with RTSs because I just had so little positive things to say about them anymore. Um, and and I kind I did feel that was the case, especially after um, Act of Aggression, where I, which just it it bothered me. It did, not just the game, but it bothered me how much I really didn't like it. Um, and and I thought that maybe that was just just it for me. But I kind of held out hope that that Homeworld was going to be the thing that that brought me back to real time strategy, and it and it has. I it's the perfect RTS for someone like me that is maybe just tired of the faffing and I didn't, I didn't used to have a problem with it but i like that there's this kind of it's it's focused but it, there's a relaxed focus um yeah so it came it, it, at the right time for me and uh, i'm completely hooked on it so I, and i feel good about that because it means i don't have to just hate an entire genre which was kind of what was happening well, I, mean, I, I think I the think problem it... is that the RTS genre is a sub 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 genre that somehow became like half of the whole strategy game genre. But you have this very specific type of building your bases and faffing about with resources. And yeah, see, that's like, why I that's... like the war game series because yeah, I it... mean, you still got to worry about logistics and things like that. But it is mostly just here is your army or your your loadout, manage it. And I love doing that. That's what I want to do in an RTS. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, so I think I mean I think the genre crawled up its own ass twenty years ago, and like <laughs> this is this is a sort of game that I'm really really happy to see exist because it's you know poking its head back out. Um, <laughs> okay, we need, to get, we need to get away from this metaphor as quickly as humanly possible. I, I think it's it's precisely what Rob said about it gives you enough time to think, which is sort of a trait it shares to some degree with with games like Company of Heroes and Dawn of War, where you can Definitely. stick people somewhere and expect them to, you know, hold a line. If if your frame of reference is StarCraft, that's almost a foreign concept, right? Because 
the battles are over so quickly. These like flashpoint skirmish style battles. Um, you know, the game, the, the classic style RTS we were talking about this time last year was uh, um, Grey Goo, yeah. which is is very similar to StarCraft in that respect. There aren't a lot of battles where there's a battle going on for a while and you have some some time to influence it. And, its approach um, was to streamline the way you yeah. controlled that pace of game, and I thought it succeeded. Like I, I really liked that game. I wish it had caught on more. Uh, but yes, I think its fundamental approach was: can we streamline the way these games work uh, and make it easier to control, rather than say, "Well, we just need to get away from this entire paradigm." I think it's what we can see with with Homeworld is a sort of it is like the relic style of strategy and even though this is obviously blackbird interactive but it's a lot of the people that worked on the the original games um and i i i feel that it has a lot of the same design philosophy that you see in games like company of heroes um and those uh, you know those games have, have kind of what have kept me from just really losing my shit with the rts genre um, because I mean, was it last year when our Dan's assault came out, Rob? Yeah, and we were gushing no, about that. God, no, that was that was winter before was last. What bloody hell! Yeah, <laughs> was... that was one of my first reviews for IGN. Um, that and that ago. that's a fantastic game. Um, and I've pretty much nothing but but good things to say about that. And it's it's very much just having a clear focus. You know exactly what you need to do. Um, there's not enough feel... busy work. I kind of feel like you guys are maybe drawing a distinction around something you like uh, that maybe isn't as strong a distinction as you think. Because man, yeah. like Company of Heroes is fast paced, man. Like, it is, I'm not see. I don't. I don't need it to be completely relaxed. What I'm saying is, I just don't want all the busy work that you get mm, with okay. a lot of RTS games. Like, I, it can like... be completely fast paced, and and you know, Company of Heroes two can be blisteringly fast at times, um, but not chaotic necessarily um but it is that i i know exactly what i need to focus on um i'm not being stretched thin worrying about all these different stupid resources and like 30 different buildings and resources and uh tech acquisition all this other crap it's melting my brain just thinking about it <laughs> See, for, for me, it's more like I, I like to be able to think about the whole battlefield and about my whole army. And a lot of times in in like a StarCraft style game, I feel like, OK, I'm being attacked here. I've got to micro these stalkers as well as I possibly can to fend off this attack. Whereas, you know, in, in Deserts of Karak would be like, I'm being attacked here. They'll be OK. I need to get these cruisers over here to flank so that, I, you know, I can kind of turn the tide that way. And I think that higher level strategic gameplay clicks with me more than a really micro heavy skirmish style of gameplay. Yeah, I don't want to be in the middle of a really fun battle and then have my attention drawn away because I've got some snipers in a bank that are getting annihilated. And then on the other side of the map, man, I've you got hated like, active aggression. Oh, I did so much. <laughs> yeah, really disappointing follow up to uh to to uh the war game series, and I, and I think yeah, which I love. I think it's not an accident. I, I feel like uh this home world reminds me a lot of of the war game series, uh just in terms of just the way you control it, uh the it's way a lot it's... simpler. Um, but I see yeah. that as well. Yeah. Uh, so I think uh, I think we will leave it there uh, and leave leave Homeworld Deserts of Karak with uh, one of our one of our stronger endorsements. 
That will do it for this week's episode of Three Moves Ahead, uh, which is produced by Michael Hermes and is hosted by the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about the show or discuss this episode with our community by visiting our website at threemovesahead.net. Uh, we'll be back next week with another Three Moves Ahead. Until then, this is Rob Zachney saying goodnight. That was a real love-in.